Welcome to No Picks After Dark, Baltimore Sun's best podcast of 2020, voted by you, the listeners. No Picks After Dark seeks to build a community based on human experience, storytelling, and conversation. Now your host, Aaron Dante. Welcome to the No Picks of the Dark podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante. Today, we have a very, very special guest. Um, this lady, she's crushing it out here, and uh, she's doing big things in society. And I'm honored and a pleasure to have her on the show. And without further ado, Miss Rebecca, how are you doing today? Good. Tired, but good. <laughs> hey, I appreciate you coming on the No Picks of the Dark podcast. Um, you know, it's, it's a blessing to get you on, and I know you're busy, but Let's get to the podcast. All right, so tell us there's a little bit about you. Who are you before we, so everybody knows who you are? Oh, wow, that's a big question. And I'm, you know, I've been trying to ask myself for the last 31 years. If you see me bouncing, it's because I'm on this like orthopedic bouncing ball. So I don't know if you're going to publish the video too, but it might look very strange. And, and I'm just letting the viewers know that. Um, so I am a scientist who's been, um, working with COVID-19 since, uh, January 24th. So eight months and one day ago, um, I started working with the Florida department of health as the GIS manager, which is geographic information sciences, which is just fancy for saying the science of anything that can be tied to a location, which includes people who are sick. Epidemiology is actually housed in geography, super nerd thing, um, but I have to, you know, bolster up the Syracuse University Geography Department for being a large influence in who I am today. And uh, that's where epidemiology started, is tracking where diseases move over space. And um, that was my role for quite a few months. Um, I built the state's very famous, now infamous dashboard which was hailed by the White House as the pinnacle of data sharing and transparency. Not long after that, I was fired <laughs> for refusing to uh, hide data and change numbers in the exact opposite of transparency. So um, I was attacked by the governor of my state quite viciously on live TV in front of the vice president and um, went and hid for a little while, not wanting to be public person. Uh, that was never something I intended or wanted. And then after a few weeks, I saw what was happening in Florida and felt um, a responsibility to continue the work that I was doing before, which was to bring unbiased information in a very clear and easily understandable format to the public. So I rebuilt um, what I had done before and I made it better. And I included data that came from the Department of Corrections, which was something that uh, the Department of Health never wanted to include. Included hospitalization data, another thing I fought for and never got in there. And um, data from the Department of Emergency Management, things like hurricane evacuations, sheltering standards, things like that. And um, recently have expanded to a new project, a collaboration that is tracking K through 12 school districts across the entire country and monitoring uh, cases in those schools. Nice, nice. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. That was great. <laughs> so uh, we're gonna we're gonna hit the rewind button. So where are you originally from? Tell us, tell the audience where you're originally from. 
That's a hard question. Um, <laughs> I was born in Pennsylvania, but my heart is still in South Louisiana. And I moved to South Mississippi, um, very close to, you know, New Orleans. That was the only place to go to do anything in that kind of rural area. Um, and so that is where I spent ages eight through 17, which are kind of the ages in which you, you know, form who you are and your ideals of the world. And, um, that that's really where I'm from. So how and, did you end up at Syracuse then? How did that even happen? I mean, because <laughs> I've read, I've read and I've that you are a first generation college student in your family. So yes, there's a lot actually. of, so there's a lot of questions going on. So first generation college student, <laughs> how did you end up at um, Syracuse? So my family never got things easily. Nothing was ever given to them. My mom um, was assaulted when she was 13 and because of her religious family, she didn't really have a choice in what she was allowed to do. So she had my sister. And I think that a lot of the perceptions that she built on who she was and who she could be were unfortunately kind of cemented into her brain at that age and that time. You know, her doctor saying that my sister would be retarded and never amount to anything. And my mom would never amount to anything. And her life would be over. And um, so she ended up having three more by the time she was 21. She didn't get the opportunity to graduate high school or go to college. But when I was a kid, um, if we didn't know where our next meal was going to come from, or, you know, if we were having a particularly hard time, my mom would always say, this is why you have to be educated. And, um, you know, education is the one thing that no one can ever take away from you. Like we lost cars, got repossessed, you know, we couldn't pay rent, got kicked out of the house the apartment, but no one would ever be able to take your education and your knowledge. And, um, I remember there was one particularly hard time when, um, my school in Mississippi used to give out these things called gold cards when you got straight A's or you got like a free bag of chips at the Piggly Wiggly, or, you know, you got like a $10, you know, starter bank account that we would open and then close and take the money. And, um, I remember asking her when I was like 11, if I had to get straight A's again the next nine weeks so that we could eat. And um, she said, no, you have to get straight A's next time and every other time. So when you grow up, you never know what this feels like. And um, so I worked my ass off. I got a full ride to Syracuse, um, paid for everything but room and board. So I had to take out a bit of student loans, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, Went there thinking I was going to be a war journalist or a journalist who was sent into the worst places in the world to tell the stories of the people that nobody cared about. And after I had my son unplanned my junior year, I decided that writing about the horrors of the world was a bit too passive for me. And I wanted to be more involved in coming up with solutions. And because of where I grew up, um, hurricanes and climate change were very um, much a part of my life, very much a part of what defined me. Uh, Hurricane Katrina hit when I was 16. Um, and I lost family in it in New Orleans. So this was something that I, I wanted to say, instead of going, you know, back to New Orleans every time there's a bad hurricane and writing about all the people that died, I want to help fix it so that doesn't happen. And so I really threw myself, I finished my journalism degree, um, but I threw myself into science, um, I went to grad school at LSU where the regional climate center was and the state um, office of climatology and state hurricane office. 
So great, great things at LSU. I am, you know, I, I bleed purple and gold. Sorry, not orange and blue right now. <laughs> purple and gold until the next championship, which might be, you know, years away. But um, so I, I went there. I got my master's in science there. Um, I did my dissertation on climatology and hurricanes. Came to um, Florida to do my PhD at Florida State. And the same thing, paleotempestology, the historical study of hurricanes over time. I know it sounds really churched up, but it's just studying how storms change when the you know, air changes. And um, I was finishing my coursework when I needed a job to pay the bills and took a job at the Department of Health doing environmental health issues. So that's how I got wrapped into this. Um, wow. Yeah. That, you're, you're <clears throat> wow. That, hey, you just blew my mind right there. So... <laughs> I mean, I mean, like, cause I've heard other interviews you've been on, you know, and I never heard that side. And I, that's what I really wanted to get to understanding your flight, your story, your real, the yeah. real story, how you got to where you are now. Um, I'm being sentimental today. Um, I felt kind of down the last few days. Just <sighs> there really should be a federal program to track schools. There should be a, a facility within every state, at least at a minimum that does that. And there's not. And so I've been basically crowdsourcing data about cases in schools, particularly in Georgia and Mississippi, which have been open now for three weeks. And um, it's been really rough to, to see how everything that everybody thought would happen happened, and yet everyone's acting surprised. And there's no tracking or accountability. And uh, that's it's making a bit depressed today. So I'm sentimental and thinking about my life and how I got here. So... <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're, we're going to walk through that. We're going to walk through all that. I like that. I like that you really explained about how you got to where you are. And the Florida dash, the, the COVID dashboard that she created, I'm out of Baltimore. So, you know, John Hopkins is here. I yeah. read something about that you came up here and learned, or how did you learn with work with John Hopkins to get a dashboard running up in the state of Florida? How did that, how did that come about? So I didn't actually want to do that. Um, I felt like that was plagiarizing. Uh, I shared the John Hopkins dashboard with um, leaders at the Department of Health here in Florida on January 23rd, the day it was launched. Being a person who's professionally involved with mapping, it was something I immediately heard about, you know, through the networks of people I know. And I suggested to them that we build something similar for Florida so that people are informed of, you know, what's going on here because it was inevitable. We had been getting emails to our emergency response group inbox about you know, that we needed to plan for a pandemic for weeks that just kind of went ignored. And um, I was told, no, no, we don't need it until about mid-February. And then it was, no, no, it'll cause a panic. And then uh, it was, um, okay, we need it, so just do it. And when I first designed it, it didn't look anything like Johns Hopkins. It looked like something that the state of Florida produced with our, you know, beautiful blue and yellow colors and branding. And I didn't want to shock and terrify people because people were already shocked and terrified. There is so much more to making public products or mapping than just putting data on a website. How you do it, it has to be strategic. It has to be thought out. There has to be purpose to everything that you do. So it didn't look anything like it. But because by that point, um, Johns Hopkins was so famous, they, um, they told me to make it look like theirs. And <laughs> after it had already launched, and I was like, it's like, I don't like that. They came up with that. That's their thing. Let them have it. We don't have to copy them. But I did fight them on a couple things that I won. Um, one of which was not using reds 
I refuse to use giant red dots. I said, people are afraid. Um, if we put the state of Florida in red, um, from light red to dark red, it makes people in Florida feel like there's nowhere safe they can go because every county is some color of red. It's a psychological thing. Red triggers fear. And you don't want your people to feel trapped and terrified when they're already trapped and terrified. Um, but I really tried to make it more of my own thing as much as possible. But I did connect with Johns Hopkins, with the CBC, with every possible agency that was out there. Um, because at the time, Johns Hopkins was doing kind of what I'm doing now for schools and basically scraping news reports for when cases were announced to create their files. And I said, hey, you know, this is me at DOH, I run the data here. Um, we'd really, really appreciate it if you'd start using the official Department of Health data instead of, you know, news reports that may be duplicating each other, you know, or create a higher amount of cases. Because if there's five news articles about a new case in Miami-Dade, you've just multiplied that times five. And so I worked with them to get that set up and with the CDC reporting and everything else. And with all journalism media outlets in Florida, I worked with to make sure they were using our data because I trusted our data at the time. And um, it was a pretty intensive couple of months getting that started. And I worked between 12 and 16 hours a day, every day. I left before my you know kids got up. I was home after they went to bed. But I knew that what we were doing, what I was doing was important and I believed in it. So I did it. So this and apparently I'm never going to get paid for that overtime. They have refused to pay me for it. Wow. So this is your baby. This is what you have created. It was, yeah. That's awesome. That That's, that's putting your, your fingerprints on things. And I guess how accurate were the numbers uh, when you were in control when you were in control of the system? How accurate were the numbers? Because we'll get to the other part, but how accurate when you were doing it? I believe that what we were putting out at the time was the best data that we had. So there were a lot of complaints about data that we didn't have that people wanted to, to be out there. And I wish that we had had. Race and ethnicity was one of those things. So Everybody wanted to be able to look at and analyze race and ethnicity, you know, and health disparities and very important research topics. The problem was, is that we didn't have race and ethnicity data for half the people who were tested positive. And you can't make any kind of really informed uh, analysis off of 50% missing data. You have no idea what that 50% is composed of. You can do some models to try to estimate it, but in reality, you don't. Um, when we were kind of forced by President Trump to add that data, um, because he said he wanted it on online himself. Um, I don't know if that was March or April, but uh, that was one of the things that I was like, this isn't data that is usable in this sense. Um, we had woefully <laughs> undertrained and underprepared staff to go out and investigate every single case, which... Now in Florida, you know, we've topped 600,000 and um, the amount of people it takes to track down and get, you know, demographic data for, for half a million people is a lot that we didn't have. Um, and so it was a shame that we didn't have it, but I didn't feel confident in publishing that data as we did. Um, and that was kind of one of the first few political kind of interference things with data that made us all a little bit uncomfortable. I wanted that data. I wanted it to be there, to be out, because I thought it was important. But so that, that leads me to my next thing. You were talking about it. I mean, minority groups, the data. I mean, it seems like 
where you see them everywhere else, the data for minority groups were huge. Uh, data was huge for senior citizen homes. How did, did you guys, I mean, how accurate was that for minorities and communities that were getting hit the hardest? I can't speak to other states because I was so sunk into Florida that I never really came up for air to see what anybody else was doing. But I do know that we did a lot of internal stuff um, trying to come up with some of those disparities. Initially, one of the epidemiologists who was in charge, who has since quit, um, said that there wasn't a huge disparity based on the data we had, but the data we had wasn't good. Wasn't good enough to make that kind of conclusion or to do that kind of analysis. Um, now, I had some suggestions for how we could come up with that based, I mean, we had the address at a minimum of every person who was tested positive. You can do statistical analysis based on where the address is, or even, God forbid, you data mine and find out, you know, who lives at that address and get that information. Um, but that didn't seem to be a worthy pursuit to them. But um, you could estimate by zip code if we had to do it that way. There are all kinds of things we could have done that we didn't. Part of that was we didn't have time, we didn't have resources. I was already working 16 hours a day, so volunteering to do that probably would have left me with one or two hours of sleep a night. Not that I was getting much anyways. But um, yeah, health disparities is, is something that is it's prevalent throughout every other type of illness. Why would we expect this specific one to be any different? I mean, we, we, we look at our disparities in healthcare access, in mobility, and access to transportation, all of those things that became so critical to life at, at all of the sudden um, at a scale that we had never thought, of course, it's going to exacerbate the same trends. And we did see a lot of it in urban areas where we had better data. Um, but I, I don't feel like with what we had when I was there, we could have indefensibly made any conclusions from the data that we had. I think it's still about 30% unknown. And that's because a lot of people refuse to answer the question on, you know, of all races, they don't want people to know. Um, and a lot of these testing sites, when you go up to test, you show them your driver's license and they write down your address and that's it. They're not writing down if you're black or white. And frankly, they shouldn't be making that decision for you. They should ask, but they don't half the time. And so it's only, collected if an epidemiologist gets in touch with you and gets that information from you and then you decide to provide it but now what areas of the state of florida was hit the hardest because i mean all my friends and i were like florida's being florida that was our thing <laughs> florida's being florida everybody knows what that means you know and again you guys are getting hit hard with this uh what like what like what were cities that were the cities were the rural areas like how was it when you were there doing this? So this kind of comes back to that health disparities issue. Obviously a more densely populated area is going to be more conducive to spread. But at the same time, if you think about a rural community where you let's say have um, one grocery store in a county, every single person in that county has to go to that grocery store. So that becomes a, a hotspot for contagious. And the, <sighs> Healthcare disparities vary not just across um, socio-demographic, it's also geographic. And a lot of these people in rural places died at home. That's a big difference between urban and um, rural conditions is they would have had to drive two hours to a hospital to, you know, if they felt they had a fever, so they didn't do it and they stayed home and they died. Um, 
the number of people who died at home versus in hospitals is much higher in rural areas than it is urban. And that's data that DOH collects but doesn't publish because I've seen it. And, um, but yeah, obviously having more people packed into a smaller place into things like apartment buildings is going to make it more likely to spread. Um, but there's, again, it's, it's, it's really hard to say because they just don't have the information. It's, it sucks because I want to be able to say definitively this, this X, Y, and Z happened. And there are people who have done that modeling to come up with those conclusions, but I am not one of them. I have not had the time. All right. So now, now we're getting to the, to the nitty gritty. I, I will say this. I have done some analysis regarding healthcare outcomes, not so much cases, but hospitalizations and deaths. And the percent of people who were de- had their racial, because if you die, we're far more likely to have your racial information than if you were alive, because that's usually on your death certificate. Um, so that data is there for, I think, every single death that we have. And if you are under the age of 50, you are, I think, four and a half times more likely to be a minority who died than you are to be white. And it's the reverse for over 50. So the majority of the people who we saw who were younger and died were disproportionately black to an extent that is, is reprehensible. Okay. So million dollar question. And you've, you've been asked this a million different ways. I'm just going to come straight at you on this. What happened? What happened with you, state of Florida, the governor? Um, I saw I saw what you, you, say, you spoke about earlier about how the governors spoke very negative of you. And I was appalled by that, by listening to that. What happened? What It was, it was like a honeymoon. And then all of a sudden, something happened. Explain to the listeners what happened. So I was their golden child there for a little while. The article in Syracuse came out um, where the Surgeon General himself was quoted saying, you know, like, I'm blown away by, you know, what she's been able to do with this data and presenting it to the public. Um, There was an article that was from, like, the same interview series that also came out being, like, state of Florida is leading the world in what they're doing. My dashboard was listed as one of the top five in the world, actually, by the vendor who provides the software. And everything was great until it came time to reopen. And um, we shut down April 1st, I think it was, and we reopened May 4th. On April 24th, um, so a week before we were supposed to reopen, I got a call at five o'clock at night, which was supposed to be, I was supposed to have my first weekend off in months, saying, um, we're gonna reopen the state in a week. And uh, we need you to come in this weekend and work on the reopening criteria with the EPI team and get it up on the dashboard by Sunday. And you're going to present it to the governor's leadership people Sunday and it needs to be ready. So that's what we did. We worked on it all weekend, late into the night. I had it all mocked up and ready to go. Sunday I presented it and they were, this was supposed to drive, you know, the plan, guide the plan, the science behind what was going on. And they were stapling the plan that was already done and printed in front of me and putting them together in packets while I was presenting the science for the first time that they had seen it. And so that was probably my first clue that something was not okay. And apparently they had already decided which counties could reopen. And when I showed them the data that said everything that you're planning on doing is wrong and dangerous, 
they asked me to do a lot of things that step-by-step became worse, more unethical. First it was, you know, oh, we're going to remove pneumonia from the ER surveillance, even though pneumonia is listed on the cause of death of something like one third of the people who died from coronavirus. Uh, So we'll just drop that because it's too high and it's not going down. We're going to change the way that we hold different sized counties, you know, responsible. So rural counties aren't going to be eliminated from being able to reopen if they don't meet the criteria. And then we're going to change the percent positivity calculation. So instead of saying, this is how many people we tested who are positive today, divided by this is the number of people we tested today, which is a real percent positive over total tested, they decided to change it to new cases per day. So only the first time that you ever test positive over every test that they had received that day, which would include duplicate negatives, but not duplicate positives. So it basically cut, like it increased the denominator by 40%. So almost every single county then became eligible to reopen based on that, that criteria. And then they changed it again to say, well, if it's not below 10%, but it's decreasing, then we'll let them reopen for two, you know, if it's decreasing for two straight weeks. It doesn't matter if it went from 98 to 97, 96, that counts as decreasing. So they, they can, they don't have to be below 10%. And when that still did not get the results that they wanted, the deputy secretary of the department of health, Shamiriel Roberson told me to open up the spreadsheet and look at specific counties that had 18 or 20% positive that wasn't decreasing and told me to just change it to 10 so that they would meet it. And I said, no, Um, I said, I didn't feel comfortable doing that. And if they wanted to come up with some kind of, you know, weighted calculation on how they're going to come up with this criteria, they needed to speak to the Bureau of Epidemiology because I was not going to do that. Unbeknownst to me at the time, they had already asked epidemiology to do that. And epidemiology said no. So then they went to me somebody in that office thinking that I, you know, don't have a PhD, that I'm not well-educated, that I don't know statistics and I don't know data analysis, which was insane and insulting and sexist. Um, They went to me afterwards hoping that I would do it, not knowing any better. And I said, no. So then they hired a private company who did it. And lo and behold, within 12 hours of getting hundreds of thousands of lines of raw data with variables that were coded that they've never worked before, um, came up with the exact results that I was asked to manufacture. And then we, op- we went to reopening. I was taken off the dashboard. Um, they kept me around because they knew they weren't going to be able to run it by themselves because I was the only person who ever edited the code, who ever edited the dashboard itself, who managed the data feeds. It was just me the whole time. And so they kept me around for a couple weeks so I could fix it every time they screwed it up, which I did. I could have told them, you know, shove it. You go figure it out yourself. You took it. If you didn't have the expertise to manage it, you should hire somebody. I actually told them that. I said, if you, if you want me off of this, then I'm off of it. And you need to hire somebody to do this. Um, then I told my boss, I was going to file a whistleblower complaint about what was going on. And, um, that was Friday and Monday on the day we went to full phase two, I was fired. Okay. That's a lot. You just you just dropped a lot of lot of stuff to uh, to listeners. 
So basically, from what I'm gathering, the numbers when they reopened were not the accurate numbers. Is that correct? The numbers that they used to determine who reopened were not real. Okay. All right. And, and they did not reflect what they were saying they reflected. And were there certain cities or areas that they wanted to reopen right away? That did you they, they were more concerned about opening the rural areas. That was their goal. They wanted to open all the rural areas because as one of the of um, DeSantis's people said to me, we can't tell Miami-Dade that they can reopen, but that, you know, Jackson or Franklin or Wakula can't. It would be a political nightmare. Gotcha. And you're talking about a governor who won these counties by like 80% of the vote. And the only four counties that he did not allow to reopen were the four most urban areas in the state. And um, (laughs) two of them were among the only handful that met the actual criteria. Wow. Wow. All right. So you blowing the whistle has made people, has made, you know, you blowing the whistle. Um, You've made people who already were just, just, they didn't trust the government already. They didn't trust it. Okay. In general. I mean, but they trusted what I, my work. The, right, the thing right. was, too, is about the dashboard. It was so straightforward and I was so detailed and clear about everything that was on there. It had support and, you know, people trusted it from all political backgrounds. Right. And that just was completely destroyed when he went after me. So, Quite viciously talking about my college sex life. I, I saw, I saw that. And that's why in the beginning, I, I, I wanted to make sure that the audience knew who you were as a person before we even, before somebody looks up and tries to disclaimer any nice credibility. That's nothing to do with anything. You, you're yeah. busy, you're doing your job and that's why we have you in here. And we, and I really want to tell this, tell this side of the story. Um, I've seen stories on different avenues and mediums, NPR, things of that nature, but I really want to tell your story. And that's why I brought you in here, because I wanted to start from square one, where it began, and how you were raised. Oh, if I was a 50-year-old white man who had done the same actions, nobody would be talking about my college sex life or an abusive boyfriend I was in a relationship with. That would have never... It's because of the way I look. The fact is, I don't look the way that people think a scientist looks. Um, I'm young, and I'm blonde, and I've been told I'm somewhat pretty. So that... And it, that is the only reason it was acceptable for a man who had never actually met me. He'd been a lot in the room a lot with me, but had never met me or introduced himself to me to talk about my college sex life. So what were you trying to get out of this by blowing the whistle on this whole thing? Because, you know, you, you know, blowing the whistle on something like this major, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's career-ending type of thing for most people. And I guess the audience probably wants to know, like, you know, you did this. Why? What was the point of you doing this? It wasn't out of the good, good of your heart. I, I want, That's why I want to bring it back to the beginning, how you talked about how you wanted people to be treated right. And, you know, you, you have good in your heart. You want things to be better. You want people to succeed. Again, I don't want to take the words out your mouth, but <laughs> yeah. you see what I mean? But you get what I'm saying. I just want to make sure we understand as the audience – why would you, knowing, knowing that you could lose your whole entire career, which you have done almost right now at this point, why would you do that? I, I didn't honestly know any other way. Um, the same reason I, I didn't hesitate to say no to doing what I was asked to do. Um, 
when I talked about filing a whistleblower complaint, I didn't think I'd be famous. Um, when the first article came out, which was the same day I was fired, uh, which I'm sure is not a coincidence, I actually emailed the writer and begged him to take it down. They hadn't spoken to me. I had no idea it was coming out. Um, it wasn't actually about me being fired. It was about how I had been taken off the dashboard two weeks ago and how it hadn't been working since then. And the numbers were not consistent and they were changing like past numbers and all this other stuff. And when that came out, um, the only reason I found out about it is because somebody else called me for a quote and I had no idea what they were talking about. And I emailed him and I begged him to take it down. And he's since then been amazing and even tried to forward me job offers. And I think he felt bad um, because he did email me, but I didn't get it that morning. Um, and uh, begged him and I said, please just let me get a job somewhere else. Give me a week to, you know, find something and get set up. And he rightly responded, well, if you're already getting calls about it, you know, that genie's out of the bottle, me taking it down is not going to do anything. And it's important news. Um, so I hid actually for five days. I didn't say anything to anybody. I didn't do a single interview. Um, my phone stopped working because so many press outlets were calling me at the same second. Some AP reporter showed up to my house and started looking through my windows and would park outside all day and take pictures. I mean, really crazy stuff. And I told my lawyers that a couple days after, um, after the whole sex life thing came up from the governor that I wanted to issue like a written statement. Um, because I really didn't want to put my face any more out there than what it was. And I was, you know, basically told, no, 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 this is the kind of thing where it's gotten to the point where you need to say something. And so, um, I spoke to Chris Cuomo for four and a half minutes. And like I said, I disappeared again. I didn't, I didn't want fame. I didn't want whatever this was. I didn't like it. It was horrible to my family. I had a job offer for six figures, which to me was like, it was barely six figures, but it was six figures to build an entire GIS network for a, a private consulting firm that was run by an SU alum who contacted me before this all happened. And when we were supposed to have our final kind of overview on the tech stuff, they just didn't answer the phone and then told me afterwards that it wasn't um, something they wanted to do anymore. And um, I watched all my job prospects just disappear. And um, even though I had done this huge, successful, like nationally recognized thing, I was now too controversial to bring onto anybody's team. And uh, that was certainly never something I wanted. Um, but it happened. And eventually I had to accept that that was going to be a part of my story now. It wasn't something I chose. It wasn't something I'd ever force on anybody else to be pushed from being a scientist who works at a state department of health and as no one um, to become, you know, the number one trending topic for like five days in the country. And uh, I decided that I had to own it and that if this was going to be a part of my story, then I was going to make sure that that part of the story was told right. And um, so that's what I've been trying to do. But well, it's funny. I, um, I first heard about you and going off a little bit and I had Syracuse University friends hit me up and say, hey, check out um, what Miss Rebecca Jones is doing right now, in Florida. And now you know how you see it. Cause at that time in the world, the world was still, let's be honest, it's, everything slowed down. 
So you're like, oh, wow, this is on Syracuse alumnus and whatever, all that stuff. That's pretty cool. And then, you know, maybe whenever May hit, that came on the news again. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, like the, you know, like, it's like, I don't really understand this. So Yeah, he was basically saying the person that we just publicly celebrated for creating this whole thing by herself is not a scientist and didn't do it and is insubordinate and right. crazy sex person. Right. And that's and like like and that's what I really wanted to come over is like I don't care about what everybody does in their personal life. You've what you've done business wise and is is needs to be celebrated what you did for the state of Florida at that point. Uh then I had friends who when your story was coming out and NPR median were like, Aaron, you got to reach out to her. You know, you, you have a voice. You people listen to you. People know, like, because it's a growing podcast and it's uh, being bigger and bigger. And I said, I don't know, you know, because yeah, because again, you went through a lot of things and I and I didn't want to be that random dude. Hey, what's up? You know, can I get Who are an interview? You? What are you about? Who are you? No, you know, and like, I remember emailing you and I was Hit and send, like, I don't know. So then I didn't hear anything back. And I, and I understood. I understood because I understood your privacy, your life has been turned upside down. And I totally get it. You've talked, you've done the media circuit, but I was like, you know what? I'm determined to reach out to her because, A, the one connection we only do have, since you only bleed gold and purple right now, which I get it. I get it. Go Tigers. But I get what you're saying, but with Syracuse. And I even reached out to Syracuse alumni and said, hey, can I, do you have contact information for her? And they're like, nobody can get it from me. I was like, damn, this is crazy. Like, she has a story to tell. But I feel like every time I heard NPR, there was a seven-minute story. Somewhere else is a 10-minute story. Like you said, Cuomo. I didn't see that. I didn't see that. I didn't see that one. Four minutes. You didn't really have time to tell your story. Your story was from the beginning, how you were raised, how you were brought up, the straight A's. That's and that's what shaped you as a person who you are today. And that's where I want to bring it back in. Than- I'm writing a book if he, if you want to read it someday. Hey, hey, <laughs> There's I- a lot of stuff in there that I've never re- I've never discussed publicly with anybody. Even a lot of people within my family don't know that I was involved with. Okay. Um, but this whole I kind of own this whole insubordinate thing because I realized my whole life has been defined by people telling me that things had to be a way that felt wrong. And I either questioned it or fought it and got myself in trouble. <laughs> a few no. times here and there for it or got somebody else in trouble when um, they were doing something wrong. But Well, again, like I said, I, I want to explain and talk, tell your story. And I think this came out really well. I'm going to move on to, here we go. I look up and I see a GoFundMe page you got going on. And I see you're starting something else. Um, what is your vision for the GoFundMe? What, what was the end game? Because you know what? I, I want to donate to what you're doing <laughs> help help I me mean, just help the audience out so we because right now we're in the time in this world this world's crazy as hell right now and i and i want you to explain just briefly about the gofundme what you have you have a new dashboard uh, i know you briefly touched on the k through 12 mm-hmm. starting with with uh georgia which is that's a hot mess in itself um but with schools going back that's a big controversy all over us um let's talk about the gofundme the new dashboard and k through 12 because i know time is limited but let's 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 get those in real quick. So the GoFundMe was actually started by my sister right after I got fired, and it didn't obviously earn that much because there was a lot of controversy about why I got fired and and who I was. 
And then when I started the new dashboard, um, all of a sudden, a lot of people all over the state and actually the country decided that this was a resource that they needed and they were going to help basically pay my salary since I couldn't get a job while I worked on this. And um, it, it, it blew me away. I think I went to bed um, after it had been up for a few weeks and it was about $5,000, which was enough for me to cover my rent and my bills um, for about a month and a half, two months. And um, I was pretty happy with that. And when I woke up the next morning, it was 50,000 the night that the dashboard went up. And I didn't honestly know if anybody would care when I launched a new dashboard. Um, I felt like I had an obligation to provide that information, but I didn't know if anybody would even feel like they needed it. And seeing the number of people who contributed, I mean, now it's over 8,000 individuals, um, made me realize this isn't just something that they think is a good you know, venture to try to do. They need this information. People don't pay for things just because they think, oh, that's nice. Pay for it because they feel like they have nowhere else to go. And um, so I decided to stick with it. Um, that for me right now is paying my bills and going to keep paying my bills for however long it lasts because I am unhirable right now. Nobody wants to hire a whistleblower during a pandemic, especially when the person blew the whistle about the pandemic. So <laughs> it's kind of hard. Um, I'm still looking. I, I did like 40 job interviews. It's insane. And somebody higher up always axed it every time. Like, I'd be like, this is good. We're going to do this. This is a good match. And then they'd run to the final approval person who would be like, mm, we have to work with the state of Florida for this government contract. We don't want to risk that. And um, fearing that their company would be retaliated against if they hired me. And so nothing has panned out yet. Um, but also I kind of want to stick with this. If this is something people need, I don't want to just immediately start go working as an analyst on something else. They wanted to support me to do this. So I'm going to keep doing this until they don't want this anymore. Or if it's not needed. And, um, like I said, the K through 12 thing came up because I just realized that nobody was doing that. And I saw a hole and I was like, well, let's fill it with information. And I've partnered with um, a nonprofit. It's actually a financial literacy nonprofit um, who's kind of shifted gears towards COVID um, the last few months. And we're working to track cases in every K through 12 school in the country. So I'm putting some of that money into helping recruit people and pay people for that project. And um, my husband wishes that you know, I was superwoman and I could just, you know, keep it so that someday we could buy a house or something, which with my credit probably won't happen no matter how much I have <laughs> in the bank account unless I can pay for full, pay in full. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm putting some towards that. I've actually um, already bought about $5,000 worth of um, PPE masks and um, other stuff for local schools here in Leon County, Florida. Um, I was pledging another five, but now that there's this Supreme Court decision that says that the governor's order to force schools to reopen at, by the end of the month is unconstitutional, we don't know if schools are actually going to open this month. Um, but I'm going to, if I have to, I'll donate the other five to PPE to a hospital um, or something like that, because that's part of my, I guess, kind of mission is to make sure that a good share of what I'm doing goes back to the communities that I'm writing about um, or that I'm covering and tracking. 
And uh, I wish I could do more for Mississippi because, like I said, um, I went to high school there, middle school there, and part of elementary. My whole family is there. My mom actually, my parents lost their house in the Easter tornadoes this year, which, I mean, good Lord, if any family in the world has had a hard year, it's mine. <laughs> they lost everything. And um, I gave some of that money to my mom so that she could get an apartment um, until her insurance stuff works out. And I, my sister is a teacher in a school there and, um, I kind of want to see which school districts I can help, but I keep thinking I can't, I can't go through every school one by one and get them everything that they need. I couldn't even do that here. You know, there has to be some kind of larger call to action everywhere at the same time for that to happen. And the best way that I can do that is show people what's going on in all these schools in the States that everybody just tosses aside even like some of the early partners I was working with didn't want to bother with Mississippi. And I don't, I never understood that. I was like, well, first of all, they're open. There's pretty much only two States that are fully open right now, Georgia and Mississippi. And they both opened up like the first week of August and Mississippi is right now, as far as I know, the only state that comes out and says exactly how many cases they have in students and teachers in schools. They don't break it down to each school, which would be fantastic, but they do come out and they say that and um, would be very easy to track because they do that. And these are rural, very poor areas. Some of the Delta, um, which is also uncoincidentally some of the um, highest rates of African-Americans per capita in the country, don't have the option of online school because 40 or 50% of the school district doesn't have internet at home. You know, this is the kind of place where there is literally no choice but to go back to school. And that's where we should start focusing. But Mississippi's a toss away to so many people, you know, and it, is. it was to me for a long time too. I have to be it honest. Is. I hated growing up there, but yeah. it is. So I have three more questions and then we will wrap it up. We'll wrap it up. Cause this is, I mean, you have blown me away with the knowledge of what you've been telling me and I'm learning from all this. Cause I didn't get this from any other interviews. Um, a first question, would you send your kids back to school? No, knowing what you know. Yes and no. All right. Well, um, we're not, okay. T yeah. Tell me. We're, we'll leave. We'll leave it like that. I'm sure people okay. are gonna ask why, but <laughs> we don't need to go into that. That's, that's good, so, um, what do you hope happens from all the work that you have been doing? What I just is, hope like I your just... lasting hope. What is it when they say Rebecca Jones? What is your lasting hope and impression that you hear from from this time going on? Because as what the world right now is, people don't trust the government. People don't trust what the government's saying. People don't trust the numbers. What do you hope that the work that you're doing right now doing? What, what, what do you hope happens? To that? I think I hope that it empowers people to demand honest and truthful information that they are entitled to. That is all I've wanted to do is say people have a right to know this information. What they do with it is up to them, but they have a right to it. And if nothing else comes out of this, I hope people feel like, when something's going on and there's not any information being put out there, they have the right to demand it from their government. Don't just expect them to tell you honestly what's going on. Demand it and support the people who speak out saying, you know, maybe this isn't completely accurate. Miss Rebecca Jones, I appreciate you coming on the No Picks of a Dark podcast. It's been a pleasure and honor. I'm glad that we've reached out and connected finally. When the book comes out, 
don't forget the small people. I would love to talk to you. But <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm keeping it real with you. You know, um, uh, I've, I've, this has been a great experience. And I'm glad that I can get you on and you tell your story, the real story. And just you hear all the sides, but I like to talk to the person. And I like to hear the, my, my, my podcast is about the positivity. And that's what I want to hear that and what you're trying to do and to help people with the knowledge and gain the information at the, the palm at the hand of, yeah, you know, the information. Yeah. So again, <laughs> thank you so no, much. And folks, we're out. This is a special edition of No Picks of Dark Podcast. We out. Welcome to No Picks After Dark, Baltimore Sun's best podcast of 2020, voted by you, the listeners. No Picks After Dark seeks to build a community based on human experience, storytelling, and conversation. Now your host, Aaron Dante.